I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 58 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Today on our show, we are going to air a new episode of Golf from the Fringe, titled The Golf Club Without a Course. Before we begin our show, I want to give a special thanks to the president of the Golf Heritage Society, Dr. Byrne Bernacki. This story wouldn't have been possible without the hospitality of Byrne and his wife, who welcomed me into their Pittsburgh home for an early morning breakfast in the fall of 2020. It was from this early morning breakfast and a talk about the new first tee facility at Bob O'Connor Golf Course at Shenley Park that kicked off the research behind this story. There, behind a tower of hedges, sits a beautiful clubhouse. It is a monument to the early days of golf in America, one of the earliest landmarks of golf in Pennsylvania, a gorgeous colonial clubhouse that has everything you want in a golf club, except the course. Golf from the Fringe presents The Golf Club Without a Course, researched, written, and narrated by Connor T. Lewis, and the Society of Golf Historians. Once upon a time, there sat a glorious clubhouse on a hill, accompanied by a golf course that was once considered the pride of Pittsburgh. The Pittsburgh Golf Club served as one of the very first anchors of golf in the state of Pennsylvania, and it was the golfing home to some of Pittsburgh's golf-loving aristocrats, including Andrew Clay Frick, Philander Knox, and the world-renowned Andrew Mellon. Pittsburgh Golf Club and its course at Shenley Park held prestigious golf matches, which often included U.S. amateur champions William Phones and Eben Byers. Needless to say, the future for golf at the Pittsburgh Golf Club looked bright, but its time in the sun would last a mere 13 years. To understand the history and demise of this once great golfing center, we must rewind the clock another 50 years, to the year of 1842, to a time when golf no longer existed in America. To clarify, I said golf no longer existed in 1842, because golf was played on U.S. soil in the late 1700s, in both the states of Georgia and South Carolina. But that is a story for another show. Our story today starts with an unorthodox romance and a runaway bride. In the spring of 1842, Mary Elizabeth Krogan was 15 years old and the only heir to the massive fortune held by her father, Colonel William Krogan Jr. That fortune had been built on the back of Mary's maternal grandfather, James O'Hara. James O'Hara was one of the most influential men in Western Pennsylvania. 
It may be said that he was one of the most influential men in the youthful history of the United States. Upon immigrating to the United States, O'Hara became a United States agent for Native Americans and was a shrewd businessman in his dealings with the federal government, acquiring massive tracts of land throughout western Pennsylvania and Ohio. On the behalf of George Washington himself, James O'Hara later accepted the exalted position of Quartermaster General of the U.S. Army, and finally, he started the first-ever glassworks in the United States, thus helping to make Pittsburgh the home of glass and steel. To say that Mary's family had money would be understating their status. Colonel William Krogan was one of the wealthiest men in the United States. In 1842, 15-year-old Mary Krogan was at boarding school in Pittsburgh when her eyes first caught the dashing British officer, Captain Edward Wyndham Harrington Shenley. In short time, their affection for each other grew, despite the glaring age difference between them. Captain Shenley was, after all, 28 years her senior, or better said, Mary was 15, and Captain Shenley was 43 and twice divorced. Knowing full well the wealth and influence of her father, Mary and Captain Shenley married in secret. And while not under the cover of darkness, they escaped the grasp of her father's power and influence by boarding a ship destined for the United Kingdom. Upon hearing the news of his only child's scandalous elopement, it was rumored that Colonel William Krogan fainted. Whether this part of the story is true or not, what we do know is that he decided to flex the considerable power he had to get his daughter back. Colonel William Krogan attempted to cash in all of his political chips, and it has been said that his request went all the way to then-President of the United States, John Tyler. His request was this, Send our fastest military ships after their steamer. Use the mighty force of the United States government to seize his daughter and return her to American soil. Unfortunately for Colonel Krogan, the President of the United States, despite what must have been immense pressure, denied his request. Dejected and rejected, Colonel Krogan lost what would have been one of the last battles of his lifetime. He had no further options to return his only child back to the United States, so instead he turned his considerable influence to the press the church, and finally the law. Colonel Krogan made the church and newspapers denounce the marriage. He made the entire affair an international embarrassment for England. So bad was it that the Shenleys were barred from the court of Queen Victoria. And finally, Colonel Krogan was successful in legally challenging her birthright to the O'Hara fortune. In short, he had legally cut his daughter, his only heir, off from the massive tracts of land and family fortunes, and any influence her name or fortune may have provided in the old world. Fortunately for Mrs. Mary Shenley, over the next eight years, her father's harsh stance on her marriage softened. Colonel Krogan bought the couple a new home in England, and upon his passing in 1850, Mary Shenley, the only living heir of Colonel Krogan, who inherited the estate of James O'Hara through his wife, became the sole beneficiary of his estate, which included a fortune of cash, and perhaps more notably, land in and around Pittsburgh, thus making Mary Shenley the largest landowner 
in Allegheny County's history, whose property at that time exceeded the value of $50 million, which in today's value would be worth in excess of a billion dollars. Decades passed by when a game that had been dormant on American soil started to plant its stake back in the ground. The first two golf courses in North America since the 1700s were built in Canada, with the very first being the Montreal Golf Club in 1873, a club that is now known as Royal Montreal. Two years later, the Niagara Golf Club was founded in 1875, near the border of Canada and the United States. In the 1880s, the game of golf was reborn in the United States. There are reported stories of golf courses in Nebraska, Iowa, and Florida in the early 1880s. In 1884, a Scot by the name of Russell Montague built a nine-hole course in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, and named it Oakhurst Links. In Pennsylvania, Joseph Mickey Fox was so impressed with his tour of the old course at St. Andrews that when he returned home to western Pennsylvania, he designed what is now known today as Foxburg Country Club in 1887. Last but certainly not least, in 1888, a Scottish sportsman by the name of John Reed teed up a gutta-percha ball in a cow pasture in Yonkers, New York, and became the founder of the St. Andrews Golf Club and a champion for golf in America. Something was abrew in 1889 when rumors arose around the city of Pittsburgh that Mary Shenley, now 63 years old, had an interest in selling off 300 acres of highland above Pittsburgh city center. News of her interest in selling quickly found its way to the director of Department of Public Works, Edward Bigelow, who saw this immense tract of land as a necessary acquisition for the sprawling urban landscape of Pittsburgh. However, Mr. Bigelow was not the only interested party, as a real estate developer had already sent his agent to go meet with Mary to purchase the property. Mr. Bigelow, knowing that time was of the essence, booked a steamer on a direct path to England and managed to beat the developer's real estate agent by two days. By the time the agent made his way to Mary Shenley's residence in London, Edward Bigelow had closed the deal of a lifetime for 300 acres of prime Pittsburgh real estate overlooking the city of Pittsburgh. Bigelow's acquisition in 1889 became Shenley Park, the second largest public park in the city of Pittsburgh. The agreement between Mary Shenley and the city of Pittsburgh was that the land would always be designated for public use. By the turn of the 1890s, the golf bug had officially bit Americans and the game grew like wildfire. World-famous clubs like Shinnecock Hills, Newport Country Club, Chicago Golf Club, the Country Club at Brookline, Marion, and others took over the headlines, and by the late 1890s, the game of golf could be played on both coasts of the United States and almost everywhere in between. In the city of Pittsburgh, a mere 50 miles south of Foxburg Country Club, one of America's oldest golf clubs, Allegheny Country Club was founded in 1895 with its six golf holes. The game's popularity grew in what was known then as the Iron City, and within a year, a group of businessmen and wealthy members of the upper class decided to found a new golf club in 1896. The first name of the club was the Shadyside Golf Club, but within a couple years it was renamed after the city that sat at the bottom of the hill. 
it soon became the Pittsburgh Golf Club. Like nearly all early American golf courses, the Pittsburgh Golf Club hired a Scotsman to design their new links at Shenley Park. The man for the job was Mark Ormanston. Ormanston, who hailed from North Berwick, Scotland, was an accomplished golfer who had won the Bass Rock Golf Club's gold medal in 1878 and 1882. He had cut his teeth on the links of North Berwick at Bass Rock, an artisan club that was founded in 1873, sharing the links of North Berwick with the North Berwick Golf Club, founded in 1832, and the Tantalon Club, founded in 1853. Ormanston designed the club their new nine-hole golf course, and the course's construction was overseen by Colonel A.B. Shepard. Ormanston created a sporty Victorian-style golf course on the public land of Shenley Park. As a side note to golf history, this historian finds it interesting that these early private clubs in America hired Scotsmen to design their courses in an effort to bring the design principles of Scotland to America. But instead, nearly all of these early golf course designers abandoned the principles of natural design in favor of the principles of Victorian design, which included ground-level sand bunkers, planting rows of shrubs across fairways, and Victorian steeplechase-style hazards. For those of you not familiar with this type of hazard, imagine looking down a fairway, and there, straight across the middle, a three to five foot wall of dirt and grass cutting across the fairway perpendicular. A vertical hazard, an artificial wall, a steeplechase. From the onset of the rebirth of golf in America, nearly every golf course was riddled with these vertical hazards, including those names of clubs I mentioned prior, Shinnecock Hills, Newport Country Club, the Country Club, Chicago Golf Club, clubs that were for the most part built under the guise of Scottish influence, and for the most part built by Scotsmen. All this being said, the Pittsburgh Golf Club's course was a massive success, and lauded by all those who understood the game. It was the second ever golf course in Pittsburgh, and its membership roster looked like the who's who of Pittsburgh society. The Pittsburgh Golf Club and its course at Shenley Park were a success, and while the course sat on land deeded to the city as public property, it remained a bastion for the rich, a private retreat from city life, made possible less by law or even rules, but rather the remote location of Shenley Park near the turn of the 20th century. While the great club on the hill overlooked the city of Pittsburgh, it predated the invention of the Ford Model T by a decade. So as the years passed, no one seemed to think to challenge the private club's use of the course which sat on public land. In the words of William Frew, who served as the Pittsburgh Golf Club's president in 1934, and whose membership went back to the earliest days of the club, and I quote, When the city gave permission for the building of the golf course in 1896, it insisted that play was not limited to club members. In theory, this was the case. Inasmuch as the golf club members were responsible for the costs and upkeep of the course, the innocent outsider who wandered on it drew a chilly welcome. End quote. During these early years, the Pittsburgh Golf Club also established one of the most prominent golf organizations in the Northeast United States, the Western Pennsylvania Golf Association and their nationally acclaimed Western Pennsylvania Golf Association's Amateur Championship, 
who has had seven of its winners claim USGA titles. Names like William Phones, Eben Byers, and Arnold Palmer. Upon being founded in 1899, the inaugural WPGA's Amateur Championship was held at Pittsburgh Golf Club, and it continued to host their Amateur Championship three of the tournament's first five years. Pittsburgh Golf Club had become the hub of golf in western Pennsylvania, and its rustic links became the common ground of a battle between two of America's greatest amateur champions, William Phones and Eben Byers. When those two men played each other on the links of Pittsburgh Golf Club, it was national news. To put that in perspective, from 1899 to the outbreak of World War I in 1916, the WPGA Amateur Championship was contested 18 times. Eben Byers claimed six of those titles, and William Phones claimed eight, while both men laid claim to the most sought-after championship on American soil, the U.S. Amateur Championship. In 1903, the club decided it needed to modernize its course. It asked and received permission from the city of Pittsburgh to expand its course to 18 holes, thus becoming the first 18-hole golf course in Pittsburgh. Here are the golf holes as they were originally laid out. Hole number one was called the Ravine, played 284 yards with a bogey score of four. Hole number two, Westward Ho, played 242 yards with a bogey score of four. Hole number three, the Meadow, was 248 yards and a bogey score of four. Hole number four, the Long Acre, played 186 yards, also with a bogey score of four. Hole number five, the Hillside, 227 yards, bogey four. Hole number six, the Dell, 189 yards, bogey four. Hole number seven, San Juan, 218 yards, bogey four. Hole number eight, Fort Pitt, 232 yards, bogey four. Hole number nine, Midway, 268 yards, bogey four. The front nine, 2,068 yards. Entering the back, you'd reach hole number 10, the reach, 360 yards, bogey five. Hole number 11, called Fairfield, 344 yards, bogey five. Hole number 12, the Moor, 366 yards, bogey five. Hole number 13, the Lowlands, 360 yards, bogey five. Hole number 14, Green Health, 366 yards, bogey five. Hole number 15, Bellevue, 122 yards, bogey three. Hole number 16, Midlothian, 253 yards, bogey four. Hole number 17, The Cops, 138 yards, bogey three. Hole number 18, 243 yards, bogey four. A back nine total of 2,321 yards, Total yardage for the course, 4,389 yards, which even with a gutta percha ball wasn't the greatest championship challenge. There was, however, a catch to receiving permission from the city to build an additional nine holes. According to former club president William Frew, the club's membership secretly felt that the day was coming when the city of Pittsburgh would reclaim their treasured land. It was a new century, the city was expanding to the area known as Shadyside, and with the example of Van Cortlandt Park in New York City, opening America's first public golf course in 1895, 
the times were changing. This private retreat for the rich and powerful sitting on public property, its days were numbered. The challenge to the right to own a private golf course on public land came from a few of Pittsburgh's golf-eager private citizens in 1909, when they arrived without invitation to play the course at Shenley Park. These protesting golfers played, but not without feeling the judgment and perhaps hearing the catcalls of the membership of the Pittsburgh Golf Club. These 21st century golfing protesters took their complaints to the Director of Public Works, Joseph Armstrong, and within a year, more specifically 1910, after 13 years of operating as a private course and under the authority of Mayor W.A. McGee, the golf course at Shenley Park, the private bastion of the Pittsburgh Golf Club, was designated a public golf course. To the credit of the members of the Pittsburgh Golf Club, there were no lawsuits. There were no arguments against the change. As a matter of historical record, they donated the equipment shed and the golf course maintenance equipment to the city of Pittsburgh. After 13 years, the Pittsburgh Golf Club became a golf club without a course. To misquote T.S. Eliot, This is the way the club ends. This is the way the club ends. This is the way the club ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. But it didn't end. Of all the amazing twists and turns in this story, the most remarkable one to me is that 87 years after losing their golf course, the Pittsburgh Golf Club stands today just behind the 20-foot-high Arbavita, fronting one of Shenley's ancient greens. And from the death of their private bastion came life. Those golfing members of the Pittsburgh Golf Club who needed to play golf ended up migrating to Oakmont Country Club. They moved to play Allegheny, and over the next decade, their membership founded two new clubs. Out of death, the Pittsburgh Field Club and Fox Chapel Golf Club were born. Apparently, you can take the golf course away from the golf club, but you can't take the golf away from the golfer. Now nearly 125 years later, the course which served as a private retreat for the members of high society can be played for under $20 in the regular season, and in the off-season only 10 the course was renamed Bob O'Connor Golf Course in 2006 after the popular mayor who lost his life to cancer. The course as it stands today in 2021 is very much the same layout as played by the members of the Pittsburgh Golf Club. And even more astonishing, many of the original steeplechase hazards, though have been flattened by time, erosion, and gravity, still exist. There have been ongoing discussions to renovate the Bob, as the locals charmingly call it. If I may be so bold to give them some advice, renovate the course, but rebuild the steeplechase hazards. They are quirky. They may seem a little out of place, but they serve as a monument for the early days of the game in the United States and the growth of the game in the city of Pittsburgh. As for the golf club without a course, it too lives on. The stunning colonial clubhouse has been deemed a historical landmark, and its members enjoy social events, racquetball, and swimming. The interiors of this stunning clubhouse would be the envy of almost any private club, and the men's locker room feels haunted by the missing sounds of golf cleats clattering upon its floors. This golf club without golf moves through the decades unfazed, but standing within its hallways, 
one can feel the kindred spirit of their founding forefathers. 120 years separate us, but our passion for the game lives on, even without a course to play on. There are two more amazing footnotes to this story. First, the Bob O'Connor Golf Course historian, who is also the acting director of golfer and player development for the first tee of Pittsburgh, Eric Kulina, brought to my attention the fact that Jock Hutchinson came to the United States in 1909 to become the head professional of the Pittsburgh Golf Club. Just two years prior, Jock had caddied for Pittsburgh golfer and U.S. amateur champion Eben Byers at the 1907 British Amateur at St. Andrews. Eric believes that there is enough evidence to suggest that Eben played a role in Jock Hutchinson's becoming the head professional at Pittsburgh Golf Club. Jock, as many of you may know, went on to win two major championships, the 1920 PGA Championship and the 1921 Open Championship. He was the professional at Pittsburgh Golf Club from 1909 to 1910. One year, and then the club lost its course, and he lost his job. One more question to ponder. Did the Pittsburgh Golf Club play a role in the founding of the first modern golf course in the United States? The answer is likely yes. Established in 1897, the Pittsburgh Golf Club and its course at Shenley Park were designed for the Guttapercha golf ball. In 1899, the golf world was knocked on its ear when Colburn Haskell patented the wound golf ball. In a blink of an eye, golfers started picking up 30 to 50 yards on their tee shots, and this was not lost on H.C. Phones and his son, W.C. Phones, who played golf at Shenley Park, Allegheny, and Highlands. All three courses were built for the gutty, and in 1903, Henry and W.C. Phones designed their behemoth, Oakmont Country Club, which opened with a yardage of 6,400 yards. That's 2,000 yards longer than the course at Shenley Park. The Phones family saw the future of golf and built the course that would host the U.S. Open more than any other, Oakmont. For more on Oakmont, the Talking Golf History podcast will be back with the history of Oakmont Country Club later this year. Until then, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Connor T. Lewis